This is Day Beautiful, a podcast that helps readers discover debut authors through in-depth conversations about books, culture, and life. To discover more debut authors, please visit daybeautiful.net and follow Day Beautiful on all social medias at Day Beautiful. Today's guest is a graduate of the Missioner Center for Writers. She has been awarded numerous prizes, including the UT Austin's Keene Prize for Literature. She currently lives in the Blue Ridge Mountains near the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Her name is Leah Hampton, and her book is Fuckface. The collection, which Leah will explain more in depth, is about Appalachia, corpses, eco-anxiety, and smart women. The title Fuckface is also the best title of the year, hands down, and I'm so excited to have Leah here with us today. Hey Leah, how's it going? Yeah, it's a crazy time. I'm, uh, I think I'm thinking a lot. I'm doing, okay, I mean, I'm healthy. My family is healthy. I'm thinking a lot about so many people. Um, I find it difficult because on the one hand, I need to kind of step away from everything in order to work and to write. But then at the same time, when you step away from the news, or at least I do, I feel like I'm disconnecting from people's pain that I should be aware of. So that's kind of a balancing act of trying to stay aware and trying to stay present with what we're all experiencing, but at the same time making space for creating, which I think is so important right now. Yeah, I agree. I find it, it it's hard for me to like share on Day Beautiful's social media, you know, past podcasts or interviews or book lists when mm-hmm. I, I feel like I should be sharing resources for donating to, you know, different organizations but i like you said it is important that art and literature has a has a a place to be an outlet for people who need it yeah absolutely and i mean i think people forget that literature is a resource art is a resource this is how this is how you change government this is how you change cultures this is how movements happen is through the arts and um so I think it's important for people to share things that they're reading and that they're seeing, you know, I mean, it was already important in when people started getting sick and we went into lockdown because, you know, the first thing we all do is start binging Netflix. Well, you know, that's writers, that's artists, that's, you know, photographers, that's all kinds of people who are making those things for us. And, and when times are tough, we, we ground ourselves in story. So I think that's, I think people can't forget that. And and in your your stories, you have a collection coming out, or it'll be out by the time this podcast is out. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell tell readers first of all, I love the title. I'll let you say it first. Um, <laughs> okay. um, what's what's your book called, and what is what are the stories about? So my book is called Fuckface, uh, which I'm now very comfortable saying after many months of getting used to it. And uh, it's a collection of short stories about central Appalachia and about the environment in the region and how the ecology here acts on people and vice versa. So kind of like the symbiotic relationship between um, this very unique and unusual and storied uh, ecosystem and the people who live here and just how you can't really separate them from each other. You said Central Appalachia. As someone who is not from the area and just assumed Appalachia is one area, I, are there different yeah. 
like are there different regions within it? I know that's a silly question now that I said it out loud, but no, yeah, it's 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 complex because so it's a it's Appalachia extends from like Alabama all the way up into Maine, right? That that area and 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 geologically speaking, that's one of the oldest um, land masses on Earth, and it's incredibly diverse. It's always had um, a tremendous diversity of, of species, and it's also had a very difficult history. There's been a lot of extraction, a lot of exploitation, both of people and of, of land. Um, and but it's so northern Appalachia is sort of like um, West Virginia from from like the Pennsylvania coal country up to, you know, Yankee area is northern Appalachia. And then um, central Appalachia is really kind of where the coal is, which is West Virginia down to parts of western North Carolina and then and then as the elevation drops and as the temperatures rise and you get into like the hill south sort of north georgia north alabama those kind of areas those are southern appalachia but where i live is right on the cusp between central and southern appalachia okay yeah i guess whenever i thought about appalachia i just assumed central was yeah what i would call appalachia Mm -hmm. yeah because i'm from northeast pennsylvania and right like i'm and we had coal mines but not a lot Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just always interesting yeah. to me, like the difference of what locals call things or what the actual terms are compared to what most people consider Appalachia. Yeah, and then you can get down, I mean, you can get pretty granular with it because then I'm also in the Blue Ridge Mountains, but then I'm also in the Great Smokies and the Plot Balsams, and then I'm in, you know, this particular creek and this particular. So it's, it's a, and the weather can change from one hill to the next or one valley to the next here so it's it's very they're very much microcosms here and did you did you grow up in the area are you born and raised in that central appalachia area i am i was not born here so i my father is from harlan kentucky which is eastern kentucky coal country my grandfather was a coal miner my mother though is british and grew up in london and so i lived kind of all over the place when i was a kid and then came to the Asheville area uh, in like the early 90s, you know, like when I was a teenager. So, so I'm very much part of the place, but also very much an outsider, which I think you have to be to kind of have some, some at least artistic perspective on it. it my, my father lives in Maine and he's lived there almost a decade and he's never going to be considered a Mainer, like from Maine. That's just, right. is, is like Asheville and the Appalachia area. It, do you find that a similar thing where you may have been there since the nineties, but you're never going to be an Appalachian or is it different? You know, I go back and forth about this because on the one hand, my father's family has been in this region and has mined this region for, you know, 200 and however many years, like uh, I'm, I'm, I'm half, true blue mountain girl, you know, but I am also somebody who, um, has lived overseas. I have dual citizenship in the UK. I'm, uh, you know, I think everybody from here questions whether they're from here, even people who've been here a long time, because, because there are so many stereotypes and there are so many gatekeepers in the culture um, and because we also don't really understand or appreciate the diversity of Appalachia, you know, I mean, I think of a lot about my neighbors, uh, many of whom are Latinx. And there are, you know, um, families who've come as part of the migrant community who come here to farm, but then also um, immigrants for a lot of different reasons from all over 
um, Central and South America who've been here for generations. And I think of them as being very Appalachian and very crucial and central to the Appalachian experience. But we don't, we all doubt ourselves because we think we don't belong. And yet this is a place, everybody's an outsider here. And so with the exception of like, you know, tourists and people who come here to just steal the timber, I think anybody who has, who feels like their experience is rooted here can really say that they're, they're Appalachian, especially if we're talking about, you know, more diverse populations. Did moving around and, and, and that dual citizenship and, your childhood do you have a like you mentioned that you question appalachian if and everything and so do other people does that affect mm-hmm. your writing in ways it does i mean i think i'm very um i can be very detached in uh, i mean i definitely like i should say i definitely live here like i live very much in the woods you know this is i do identify as an appalachian american you know but at the same time i am someone who you know i don't cook local food the way everybody else does because i grew up with different recipes you know i don't have the same linguistic associations you know there's a lot of terms that are local that i don't use or that i don't even um, and, and things that I say that my friends don't understand. But I think, you know, Lee Smith has talked about this, that as soon as you begin to write about a place, you have to detach from it. You have to step outside the circle because you have to observe the circle. And it's very difficult to understand it from inside. And so I think for me, um, it's that that's true for any writer that in order to understand a place, you have to be able to take a step back from it. So in being a person who is from here, but also not from here, um, different in, a, in amongst a lot of people who are different, <laughs> I have, I hope it gives me more perspective, you know, without, while still doing the place justice. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, and you mentioned fuck faces about the area. Mm-hmm. Would you, this is a question I was going to ask later, but would you ever write outside of the region? Yeah, I do. And I write, um, you know, or I think maybe a better way to put it is that not everything I write is specifically rooted in place. Like I have stories, some stuff I'm working on now that's either got some uh, kind of, um, you know, magical realist elements or that is, uh, uh, maybe set here, but isn't about the place, but is more about um, some other, you know, grand literary theme other than <clears throat> identity of place. So, yeah, and, and I certainly think, I mean, I think sometimes about writing about other places I've lived. Um, I don't know. It's hard, though, because this this region is, it is a drug, you know, and you do kind of get addicted to the history and the and the richness of the literary tradition here. So I think I'll always write at least Appalachian tangentially. Um, <laughs> like I'm always going to be interested in those traditions, but yeah, I can and do write about other things and other places. With, with this collection, when did you know it was going to be tied primarily to the region? Oh, gosh. Um, I always knew that I wanted, I always knew that I I, I wanted to try to do 
I guess collection is the wrong word, but I understood even from early on when I was first working on short stories um, that they were a good way to kind of show a lot of different perspectives about the environment here. And I, and I, you know, I started out when I first graduated from high school, my first job was with Greenpeace. Like I've always been, and I worked for um, the National Parks and Conservation Association. I've always been kind of an environmentalist from the time I was very young. And so that aspect of it has always interested me. And I wasn't really, I experimented with a lot of different ways to try to capture that. So I think from the beginning, really, I want to talk about the title and the title story, um, sure. But but more of like an edit, um, a publishing aspect of it, not necessarily the story. The, was mm-hmm. there pushback with the title? No, not at all. I have the world's coolest. I have the world's coolest editor, and I, you know, and the story, the book actually sold under a different name because I was nervous about the fact that you know, because uh, Fuckface was a story that came out a couple of years before the book came out in I think it was 2016 that story came out and you know I got so many rejections for that story I had rejections for that story that took like half an hour because I know they just looked at the title and thought it was a joke or something um but anyway Story South wound up uh, publishing it which is a great uh journal of southern uh uh, Southern stories. Um, but yeah, I, so the book sold under a kind of a generic working title and, um, and it was this little dance between me and Caroline Zankin, my editor and the folks at Holt who were all just like, well, I like it. Do you like it? Do you want to, I mean, we could, and then everybody just kind of admitted, no, this is, this is what we want to call the book. This is the best name for the book. It's the only name for the book. And so everybody just kind of jumped on board and the, um, marketing people at Holt were like, yeah, let's do it. Let's roll. So I did not want, I will say that um, the decision was a, a publishing publisher's decision to, to censor it, to take the U out and replace it with an asterisk. Cause I was like, you know, come on, let's just go for it. <laughs> but apparently um, that wouldn't work when you're trying to buy it on Amazon. So they had to, <laughs> they had to put the asterisk in there. <laughs> Yeah, or I guess you would have to have like a sticker over it, like a. Yeah, like I a, mean, I would wind up in a. Yeah, I would. The book would wind up on a very different corner of the internet if we had left, if we hadn't censored the word. Yeah, why is fuckface? You mentioned it, everyone loved it. it. It's the only title that worked. Why does the story, and the title encompass the entire collection from your perspective? I mean, I think it's very personal for me, because that story was one of the few stories in the book that just kind of came almost whole in a first draft. Um, and the character of Fuckface is personal to me and based on somebody that I know. And, and also is, you know, so much of this book is about people who are, who are struggling to find a way to, to live in this space and to, and to reconcile with environmental, environmental issues and health issues and, and, and life here is complicated. And Fuckface is this character that we never know very much about, but we know from the start, like this is a person who's found out a way to make it work, you know? And, and so that's a, for me, that's been, this kind of hopeful thing in these stories that can get quite dark at times. I try to leaven the book with humor because it's heavy stuff, you know, and um, he's just this mystery figure who's like, no, it's going to be fine. 
you know, so it's very reassuring, I think, for me at least, to think about him. When, when considering how heavy it is and trying to add that humor, does what comes more naturally for you when creating and crafting? The humor or the darkness, yeah. you mean? Oh, um, is there any difference between humor and darkness, Adam? Is, no, that's is, true. I often think about that. They, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, uh, I yeah, I'm I came here for the rough chuckles. You know, like that's that's life to me. It's like, it's. Uh, I think I'm a very. I mean, I think my friends would say that I'm that I'm naturally a kind of a funny person and a witty person, and I like a good laugh, and I'm always you know, the one to find the punchline. Um, but I'm also, you know, pretty dark. <laughs> and, I, and I've, you know, I've seen some shit in my life. And, um, and I think I have an understanding of, of kind of a Buddhist understanding of life as suffering and that kind of thing. And I, I find it difficult to separate those two things. I think it depends on the story, what comes first. A lot of stories for me start with, um, an image that's maybe humorous or, or quirky, but then when I start to unpack it, it can only go in a place that's, that's dark because, you know, humor comes from humor is a defense mechanism, I think for most people. And, and, and it's a way to understand difficult things, satire and, 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 you know, humor that cuts. And so, uh, they're very connected for me, but I think often it starts with something that's different or funny. And then the only way I know to unpack that is to say, okay, but what really is going on here that's making this joke? With Fuckface being so personal with someone you know, what was that first image that came for that story? The image that came for that story was, there's a lot, you know, I, there's a lot of like limbs and body parts in this book. And um, what that story started with, um, someone I know who, who, or so, I should say someone I know of who had lost a hand yeah. and, um, and that just kind of rolled into, you know, well, how would somebody that I know react to this person and, and what's the, and then that just became like a, like a secondary detail in the story, but it was, but the, the interest in me for, in it for me was, how do people in a small town react to these, these obvious differences between each other, you know? And I, and that, so that was, that was where it came from. With that image becoming a secondary part of the story and, and it taking on its own life of its own, how do you allow yourself to, to move through a story when, when you're writing it and you're going through it in the first draft? without fixating on, oh, I thought about the hand first, I want to write about the hand. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? How do you how do you allow yourself to be yeah, free? No, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that just comes with practice because for me, uh, I'm very character-driven in the way that I write, so I think it's a little easier for me because I follow people. Like once, once I start working on something, I, I'm very... Um, I don't know if respectful is the right word, but, but those people feel very real to me once they, once they appear on the page. And I would never tell somebody else how to live and I would never tell somebody else what to do. So for me, what I tend to do is I start with an idea, but I may, I may be led elsewhere 
you know, and I mean, I've, I'm certain that I've forced it and we've all done that where we've been working on something. We're like, no, no, the story must go this way. But generally speaking, what I try to do is like, if somebody comes along as I'm working and says, well, actually that's very interesting that, you know, somebody with one hand, but I work in a supermarket and I'm having a really rough time. You know, I just follow that person. And, and it's like the characters just kind of tell me where they want to go. And then when you follow these people, I'm getting really technical and crafty here because that's what really interests okay. me. It's um, <laughs> how do you how do you rein yourself in then to know that you found the right story f- for what you're trying to write? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is, you know, you write more than you publish. So I've got all kinds of crazy people living in my house. They're not all going to be in a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? um, so some of it's just trial and error. Um, I, I, that's hard. That's really hard to quantify. That's, I mean, it's a craft thing, but it, it, but it is instinct. Like, you know, you just know when you meet somebody you're going to be friends with, or you just like, you get it, you develop a sense. And I think with practice and with reading and with workshopping and with, you know, making sure you have writer friends who are honest with you, you sort of start to develop an internal editor who knows like, Oh no, this, we're this guy's okay. We're sticking with this guy for 10 pages. You know, it's, uh, there's some, there's some alchemy there that I don't fully understand. No, for sure. It's, it, I, I find it, especially with short stories, I find it interesting how the ones that get published, you know, how they, they, they start from that initial idea to, they go down a winding road and end up maybe mm-hmm. completely different than what was intended sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, short stories are, you know, short stories, I think, um, have to do as much as a novel, just in terms of emotional impact. They have to do it in this condensed way. And and one of the things you have to know when you're writing a short story is you can't answer every question. You certainly can't answer every question about whatever the, you know, message of the story is. But you also can't answer every question about that person. So the trick is finding how to give enough information about that person that they're interesting and that there's enough depth there that the person who's reading it, you know, sees it as a fully fleshed thing while you're not giving them everything that a novel would give them. Um, so yeah, maybe the answer is just you pick the most interesting people or mm-hmm. the most complex people. With this collection, was there, you mentioned Fuckface was, it just came out, it was easy. Was there others that were just as easy or, or yeah, I guess that's the question I'll ask. Were there others that were just as easy? Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. Easy for different reasons. You know, like um, Boomer was really easy to not easy to write, but Boomer wrote smoothly, I think, because I was writing that during the the fall of 2016, during the election, during those forest fires. Those were all real events, and I really wanted to react to those. And I was really interested in the experience of firefighters in on, in the Eastern mountains who were, you know, trying to deal with that. And, and I, you know, I live in a place where I know park rangers and I know firefighters, there were people I could talk to. And um, so that process was, was pretty smooth. Most of the, there's very few stories in this collection that I like struggled with. Um, some took longer. There were a couple of stories that I had wanted to write for years and, and, it just took finding the right vessel for it. Like meat was a story about, which is a story about um, 
hog farming and uh, the kind of ravages that that has on everyone and everything involved. And um, I had known about hog farming for a long time and, and the pollution that comes from it and the, the damage it can cause. Um, and it just took me a long time, it took me years to figure out a way to kind of find a person who was interesting, who could be part of that, that system. Um, uh, but yeah, overall it was not like, I didn't have to like rest these stories out of my heart or anything. They, they, they took time to revise and they took time to think about, but once I kind of knew how I wanted the book to be framed, they, they the process wasn't too bad. With me, what finally clicked with it after all those years that the person, I think what finally clicked was finding a way to open it because it was, I knew that I wanted to have that. I, a lot of these things are really difficult and really disturbing. And the, and the content of that story is really disturbing and even more disturbing because it's true. Um, or at least factually, these are what, you know, these fires can happen and it can kill all these, all these, um, animals and sometimes people, um, I needed to find a way into it and I had written all these different introductions and all these different, uh, you know, uh, are kind of artifices to get into a story about, about, because, you know, what, why should you read a story about hog farming? Right. And, um, why not just write an essay about it? And yeah. And then I went to this funeral and it was this remarkable experience. And, um, and, I was, and that inspired me to think about, about Southern funerals and, and the difference between a funeral and a, and a kind of a Southern space as opposed to a mountain space because Appalachia is very different to the rest of the South. And so I went off on this whole thing about studying funerals for a while. And then that just became the introduction to the story. Another thing I don't think a lot of newer writers think about, or at least I don't think about it a lot is I, I hear questions when I go to readings about research for novels a lot of people, mm-hmm. how did you research this? And you've mentioned a few times how, like, you you, you took a deep dive into funerals, and and mm-hmm. and do you how how deep do you go into researching for a single story? Yeah, pretty deep. I'm pretty. Um, I I'm I am a very pro research writer. Like, I I like writers who who do their homework, and I I would sometimes get frustrated in workshop if we were workshopping a story and it was obvious to me that the person who was writing it like didn't know anything about the thing they wanted to write about they just had this idea and which is unfair of me because you know there's different ways to get um to get the story finished and some people start in a different place than I do but for me I can't I can't write about uh well anything or anyone unless I really really know a lot about it and and I did my undergrad uh, degree in history and I'm just a nerd and so I'm one of these people that like will go to the special collections at you know such and such university library and be like I need to see all of the original notes from the guy who made this statue on Main Street and that'll be like one line in the story you know it's green <laughs> and but I, I have to know all that stuff and I think the main reason I have to do it is so that I can decide where I'm going to veer off from what's true and what's not, because ultimately it's fiction. And I have to, I have to know, okay, well, where can I lie? You know, and where, and where do I have to stick to what's, what's true? Because I think people sense that when they read, they know, 
even if you haven't done the research yourself, you know if something feels real or not, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, uh, that's a good thing to say. I, I, I often find myself, like, I, I have not been in workshops. I'm not necessarily a fiction writer, but I could sense when a published work just feels 100% fabricated. And not that mm -hmm. that's a bad thing, but for me, I do like that that's reality, that sensory touch of that green statue, even though one line. Yeah. Um, it's important yeah. to have. Well, especially when, because this is a book about a region that has, that where people know their local history, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm fully prepared for somebody to tell me, well, I'm from Kingsport, Tennessee, and here's where you got this wrong because that hospital is actually on this street and not on that street. Like I have, I have to know these things and, and I'm prepared for that because for me, I think, well, yeah, I know where that hospital is, but I also know where I needed it to be. So this person in my story, this character could walk a certain direction, you know? So I know where I've taken liberties and where I've, where I've stuck to what's true. When writing these stories, do you, do you think about the response from locals or do you try to push that, push that away? Yeah, I don't think you can think about that stuff in the first draft. You know, um, I don't, it, audience comes in later for me. Um, when, when I'm writing a first draft, I'm trying to tell myself a story. Like I'm, I'm trying to entertain myself, you know, and, um, and that's, I think that's really all I care about. I'm having a great time, you know, no matter what anybody else is, is doing. I think that's really important. And I don't think writers talk about that enough. Like you have to, it's a hard process. You have to at least tell yourself a story you want to hear. Um, yeah, I think, but I definitely think about it and I think about it from everything like big stuff, like you know, who's the most interesting character or whatever, but down to little stuff, just like spacing on the page. And um, I notice one of the things I notice. I watch my husband read a lot and I notice where he is um, when, if he's reading a book or something, I watch his physical reactions, you know, like if he sighs or if he, if he shifts in his chair or if he grumbles and I, and I'm really aware of that of like, how, like when I'm, when something's getting, you know, closer to, to being finished, I think a lot about like, I want you to be, I want you to cough here. I want you to fart here. I want you to be sad here. You know, like I, I do think about that. It's the reader. I mean, <laughs> no, I get, yeah, yeah. And, um, I was just thinking of like when I read and how, like my physical movements and reactions to things, I was just, mm -hmm. I was just thinking about, about that as you were you were explaining your husband's shifting um i interviewed ashley bryant phillips recently who had a collection she's from yeah. she has a very not a very similar but on the surface level a similar collection about you know rural north carolina stories yeah, she's from down east yeah so very you know yeah. character driven and she said something about how In her MFA, she thought about when people would come up to her and they weren't from Appalachia or a rural mm. town, but they wanted to write about it. Um, do Can you tell when writers, like you, you did mention with the research, but can you tell when writers are not familiar with their work? Just by reading oh, it? with the place they're Yeah, with about? the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you can tell, for me, it's more important 
that um, for I will say first of all, Ashley's book is wonderful, and people should read that. Um, Sleepovers is great. Um, uh, I think it's more important to to think about appropriation than it is to think about whether I can tell whether somebody's from where they're writing about or that kind of thing. For me, I'm always on the lookout for people who've done it sensitively um, or who who are really invested in what they're doing as opposed to people who are kind of doing it for the, for the hipster cred, you know, there, and there's a lot of that. There's a lot of writing, not just about Appalachia, but that's something that I see so I can speak to it, but about a lot of places and a lot of experiences where, you know, if you're just a privileged person who's not really had complex experiences in your life in these unusual places um there's there's sometimes theft of that because if you're a writer and you don't know what to write about or often it's just a function of youth like you just haven't done enough in your life maybe just go do some things and then write you know but and and so i'm i i noticed that but there are writers like i'm trying to think of her name um oh no i can't think of it but the book is over the plain houses which is this wonderful novel that um, came out a couple of years ago about, about the town that I live in. And, and she's not from here. Her family is from here. And she just did years and years of research. And she's so completely um, steeped in, in the place and so respectful of it and so amazed by it that she just lets it be magic. And it's, it's a beautiful book, even though it's not written by someone who's from here. And then I've read books by people who are from here who are just, you know, um, doing it to, to put on a jacket they think looks cool, you know. So for me, it's about the authenticity of the voice and whether that person is being appropriative rather than um, uh, true to what they love about the place. Um, but I think Ashley makes a good point because that does happen, and that happened to me in my MFA too, and just in general where you get, you know, people come up to you and they're like, hey, can you teach me how mm-hmm. to play banjo? And, and it's like, no, yeah. <laughs> first of all, no, because we don't all play banjo, but also you're from Brooklyn. Like, why, why don't you play something that's, you know, mm-hmm. or an instrument that a, a native New Yorker can teach you or, you know, I don't know. Yeah. And I didn't mean to put words <laughs> in her mouth, but it was very similar to what you were saying, where people came yeah, to yeah. try to appropriate yeah. aspects of her life into their stories almost. Yeah, well, and that's that's true. That's always been true, right? Like, there's always been this thing of, of here's an interesting voice. Let me take that and twist it and do something with it. And we especially do that with, with the experiences of people of color in this country, and you know, the music and the art of of, of marginalized or less commonly seen or heard people often gets put into this blender by some cool person who has a lot of money and access and, and then they become, you know, the, the vector for it. Uh, so yeah, in that sense, I totally agree with her and appreciate it. And her book is so wonderfully raw and authentic and, and true to the place that she's from. So yeah. I'm sure that happened to her a lot. Yeah. And then I, I just looked up over the plain houses. Uh, the author's name is Julia Franks. So Julia Franks. Yeah, yeah. I knew it was Julia, but I couldn't think of her last name. Thank you. Of course. I yeah, just, that's a great book. I and that's heard... like, I mean, I can, bit on the places where that book happened and it takes place in the 20s i think 1920s yeah i'm going to add it to my um local indie bookstore shopping cart to check out soon (laughs) um 
earlier we talked about how I, I asked the publishing question about Fuckface the title. And then one thing I did want to mm-hmm. talk about, um, just because I know this happened with your book, it was supposed to come out a month or two ago and then got shifted yeah. because of, you know, at first the pandemic. What, as a debut author who's been working on these collections forever, what was that emotional reaction to like, oh, I have just a little bit longer to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this whole thing is so surreal because, uh, yeah, originally the book was supposed to come out in May and we were putting together, uh, tour dates. I had dates lined up to go and, and give readings and bookstores that I love all over the South. And then obviously bigger events and more important things happened and so all that was canceled and then the book is moved to July. So it just feels like, uh, I don't know that I feel necessarily disconnected from the experience of having my first book come out, but it just seems like something that's happening in this wider and more important tidal wave. Um, but I'm just trying to be, I'm still grateful and I'm still appreciative. I'm still excited um, it's kind of cool now because the book comes out on Bastille Day, which is, you know, I love French stuff, so that's fine. And, um, uh, I, I think I'm, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how emotional I'll be on the actual publication day of the book because there won't be a book party, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just going to drink a lot of champagne and probably cry a lot and just be kind of proud of myself and hope that people in the midst of all that's happening right now that people find it and hope that they get something from it. Um, So I guess I'm hopeful. I think that's the main thing. And logically I understand it. So it's, so I don't think I have like really heavy duty emotions about it because there is so much happening right now, Mm -hmm. but it is weird. It's definitely, it's definitely feels, uh, it's definitely surreal. Yeah. When, when, the quarantine and everything started happening, I decided to interview more authors than I had planned on. Um, and, right. and a lot of them were saying very similar things where it's like, I don't even know how to react right now because yeah, yeah. I had like, yeah, it's just a, it's a weird time. I mean, obviously there's grander, more important things than a, like, you know, my personal reaction to like to, I don't have a book coming out, but that's what a lot of authors would say, you know, it's like, but yeah, but you yeah. did spend so long on, you know, writing and editing and finding an agent, finding a publisher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. But I think I'm just, maybe how I feel is just, like I said, hopeful because I feel like, as I said earlier, stories are so important and, you know, they're, they're, our brains need them and our, and we need, that's a way that we've always connected as a species. And so I just want people to still be able to find it and find something in it. And, um, you know, I worry about every, I worry about everybody I know right now. I've got friends out protesting. I've got friends who are sick. You know, I'm, I worry about my family. We don't see each other as much. And so this is something that I have where I can say, okay, well, I made this. And there's and there's people in it that I hope you'll care about, and I hope it gives you something to think about, or give me, you know, makes you cry or makes you laugh. So, yeah, in a weird way, maybe I just the main thing I'm I'm feeling is that desire to connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I just want to wrap up. You already gave a great book suggestion 
and I want to, with that desire to connect, are there currently books you're you're able to read and and get through? Because I know some some writers I've talked to have said it's just so hard to read right now because of everything that's going on. Yeah, there, I mean, I, I do find it difficult. My attention span is not great right now. Um, but I will say uh, there's a book coming out in September um, by Annette Sonnet Clapsaddle, who's uh, I think it's the first novel written by a Eastern Band Cherokee Indian woman. Um, specifically about the Cherokee experience in the, in the Eastern band. And that's coming out in September. It's called, um, even as we breathe, um, David joy, his new book coming out in August, uh, that I have already read. Um, when these mountains burn is fantastic. Um, I think people should read crystal Wilkinson. I've been revisiting a lot of local authors, uh, crystal Wilkinson's birds of opulence, um, Silas House is re-releasing some of his early books, which are all about Eastern Kentucky, and he's wonderful, you know. And then I'm also kind of revisiting uh, books that I loved as a child and as a teenager, like kind of foundational books for me. I've been reading, you know, they've got that movie coming out about Shirley Jackson, so I'm reading her again. Um, Jeanette Winterson, I love, so I'm reading her right now. But I dip into books and then have to step out of them because I. You know, if I get sucked into one thing for too long, I feel like I feel guilty and then I have to watch the news some more. <laughs> Thank you so much to Leah for coming on the podcast today to talk about Fuckface. You can find her on the internet at leahkhampton.com or on Twitter at Pludger. That's P L U D G E R. A very special thank you to my friend Raquel, who is letting me use music from her brand new music project, Rocky Colin. Please check out her music at rockycolin.com. As always, you can find me at daybeautiful.net. All of the social media is at daybeautiful. Please subscribe to the podcast and keep checking out the website for more interviews and book recommendations. I hope everyone's staying safe out there. Until next time, I'm Adam, this is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful. Beautiful.